This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm cautiously optimistic that COVID is going to force the world to acknowledge that we have a global problem that requires a global solution. And once we've got a global solution for COVID, we will then have the model to seek a global solution for climate change and inequality and these other big problems. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic that this tragedy of COVID may, for the first time, motivate the world to adopt global approaches to global problems. That's Jared Diamond, who's found a ray of hope as America and the world deal with a perfect storm of crises. The pandemic, climate change, depletion of resources, and rampant inequality are all on the top burner at the same time. So who better to talk with than someone who studied how nations cope with crises, or how they don't? For many years, he's turned out penetrating histories, including the extremely popular book Guns, Germs, and Steel. His most recent book is Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. And it has a fascinating twist. Using insights he gained from his wife, who's a clinical psychologist, he looks for clues in how individuals deal with crises to analyze how nations succeed or fail when they deal with crises. As always, his thinking is stimulating and challenging. Thank you so much for coming today, for for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You've won the world's attention for decades now in analyzing civilization and how it exists and how it dies and how it thrives. And the question of crises comes up in your latest work a lot. And I, I wonder, how would you describe the kind of crisis that interests you the most? I mean, there are different kinds of crises. Any crisis interests me. Um, Often crises have spectacular, romantic, or novelistic value. But crises are also times of potential change. Um, Crises are turning points. Um, I believe I used the word turning point, in fact, in the subtitle of my book. Um, In one's personal life or in a nation's life, Things go on on a straight line for years, sometimes for decades, and then comes a 
crisis when you discover or when a nation discovers that the way it's been operating previously just is no longer working. And it's challenged. It's got to make a change or it fails to make a change. Um, we know that for us as people, marriages go on happily. And then there's a crisis and the marriage either readjusts or it collapses. One's life, one's career goes on and then there's a crisis and you either go straight on or you have to make a change. Um, so crises are the key point in one's life. If you like, so I'm 80, 82 years old. Out of the 82 years of my life, there were a few periods, a few key periods when things were up for grabs. And once the decision was made, life then went on for decades. You compare often, in fact, it seems to be central to your work, to, to bring in the comparison between, not just among nations, but the comparison between national crises and personal crises. It, it, do I have it right that you were influenced in, in that approach by your wife's work in psychiatry dealing with crises? I see you smiling. I smile whenever I think of my wife. It's an understatement <laughs> to say that I, I was influenced. So in the beginning was my interest in national crises. When I, when I reflected on the countries where I've lived for the last 70 years, um, all of them, either were undergoing crises. I was living in Germany on the day the war was erected, or they were approaching crises. I was living in Chile a few years before the Pinochet coup d'etat, or they were coming out of crises. And so I've been interested in national crises, but Marie, my wife, in the first year of our marriage, Marie is a clinical psychologist, and in our first year of marriage, Marie was doing a specialty training in a discipline called crisis therapy. That's not the usual psychotherapy where a therapist meets with the, the client for years, once a week, and you have the opportunity to explore things that happened in early childhood and the consequences. In crisis therapy, someone comes into the office in a crisis. Their marriage is at the risk of breaking up. Their child just died. You realize that your view of the world just isn't working. And the therapist has to help the client Quickly, the rule of thumb is within six weeks because there's the risk of suicide and sometimes it happens. And so each week, Marie and her fellow therapist would get together and discuss how their various clients were doing. And Marie and her fellow therapist came up with a, a checklist of a dozen outcome predictors, which are familiar to all of us. Do you acknowledge there's a crisis? If not, you get nowhere. Do you accept responsibility? If not, you get nowhere. Do you seek help from friends? Do you look to friends for models of how to resolve the crisis? And as Marie talked about these outcome predictors for personal crises, I realized similar things, it seems to me, are outcome predictors for national crises. So the source of my book, Upheaval, is then two sources. One, my experience of an interest in national crises. And then, the, on the other hand, what I learned from Marie about personal crises that seemed to me to offer a good framework for understanding national crises. So it's a way of understanding the international crises uh, and more than just a, a, a way to communicate it to students and readers. Absolutely. Um, yes, it is a way to communicate to students, but more importantly, it's a useful framework for understanding the unfolding of the crisis. For example, take the current crisis around COVID. Um, there are countries that have resolved COVID very well. I, real, I read today that New Zealand now has zero cases of COVID. There are other co countries where COVID is still building up. 
um, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, probably Indonesia. Um, what are the differences? Well, look at the framework. Um, New Zealand acknowledged early that there was a crisis and did something about it. Um, Indonesia denied, concealed that there was a crisis. There are countries that accept responsibility. The United States today, I regret to say that the President of the United States is a leader in denying responsibility and blaming things on other countries. But the problems of the United States, the fundamental problems of the United States, are not caused by China, Canada, or Mexico. They're caused by the United States, and the only only people who can ruin the United States are we Americans. So those are examples of how the framework of personal crises helps to understand national crises. We seem to be going through a perfect storm of crises that I hope is not going to turn out to be perfect, but we have... COVID, we have Black Lives Matter, we have an economic problem, and we don't even seem to share the same value system. Are we in danger because there are all these crises happening at once, or is there one that stands out in your mind that we really are in danger of ignoring? Sometimes crises come in isolation, but it's true that um, in life for individuals and for nations, it's rare that you only have one problem. Um, it's rare that a person's life is in great shape except for their marriage deteriorating. Um, in the United States today, we have the problem of COVID, but before COVID, we had other problems in the United States. The breakdown of political compromise, the restrictions on voting. Voting is the essence of a democracy, and so if citizens can't vote or don't vote, it's not a democracy. The increasing inequality and and loss of socioeconomic mobility within the United States, the decline of government investment. So yes, you're right that the United States has not one major problem, but at least four major problems. And then one would add to that, of course, problems of race relations, et cetera, et cetera. And similarly for the world, is there one big problem for the world? Well, there's climate change, there's population, there's inequality, there's resource depletion. Um, the world and nations, and often we as individuals, face multiple crises. The idea of admitting there's a problem, while it's hard for an individual and even harder for a nation, it sounds insurmountable for the globe. There are so many cultural variances, so many different values that come to the forefront, and so much denial. I mean, in, in our own country... There's, there seems to be more denial than uh, acceptance of, of uh, climate change. What do we do about that? It's easy to be pessimistic. and There are lots of reasons to be pessimistic. And the current situation of COVID might incline one to be even more pessimistic because in many cases, they, nations are dealing with COVID, trying to solve it within their own boundaries and never mind the rest of the world. But paradoxically, COVID is one of the things that makes me cautiously optimistic because look at what COVID is doing. For the first time in world history, we have something that everybody is recognizing or is going to have to recognize as a world problem. Climate change, there's been denial that climate change is a world problem. Why? Because people don't die in two days of climate change. Um, and 
if someone dies, say, of air pollution, you can argue about whether that air pollution is due to climate change. But COVID, you die quickly of COVID. And if you die of COVID, there's no doubt that you died of COVID and you didn't die of something else. So COVID is recognizably a a global problem. It's affecting everybody around the world. And it's also dawning and it's going to dawn on people that the world won't be safe until COVID is controlled all around the world. New Zealand has now eliminated COVID. But as long as COVID exists elsewhere in the world, it's only a matter of time before New Zealand gets reinfected. So I'm cautiously optimistic that COVID is going to force the world to acknowledge that we have a global problem that requires a global solution. And once we've got a global solution for COVID, we will then have the model to seek a global solution for climate change and inequality and these other big problems. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic that this tragedy of COVID may, for the first time, motivate the world to adopt global approaches to global problems. I was interested in your analysis of Chile. I have a sentimental connection to Chile. I, I nearly died there one night on top of a mountain. I had to have an emergency operation in the middle of the night, and this wonderful surgeon saved my life. So I, I think of myself as reborn in Chile. And while I was there, I noticed that the Pinochet influence was still there decades later. One of the things that I think you point to in the overthrow of Allende was that there had been a desertion of the spirit of compromise. Is, is that one of the leading causes? It was one of the big crises that they faced? In a nation, yes. Um, and th- that illustrates that while individual crises are helpful for understanding national crises, there are differences. There are obvious differences. Nations have leaders. Individuals don't have leaders. Um, nations do or don't compromise. Um, an individual, one could talk about an individual compromising with himself or herself, but that's different from national compromise. In Chile, there was a breakdown of compromise that was going on when I was living in Chile in the late 1960s that led to the explosion of 1973, a breakdown of compromise between the left and right that then led to the coup d'etat. That's also a reason why the example, when I teach about crises to my UCLA undergraduates, the example of Chile was the one that they and I found most upsetting because the parallels to the United States today are just so obvious. The deterioration of compromise in the United States since the 1990s, breakdown of compromise within the Republican Party, within the Democratic Party, between Republicans and Democrats, the breakdown of compromise between legislature and executive. In Chile, it ended up in this horrible coup d'etat. What's going to happen to the United States? Compromise is the essence of a democracy. And so when one sees compromise breaking down, it's worrisome. The Greek tragedies, to me, have always seemed a case where we're presented with a character who has been very successful by a certain way of doing things and meets a crisis where that way of doing things is exactly the wrong way to to approach it. 
he's been successful or she's been successful up until this point, approaching things that way. And the downfall is that they can't switch to some other way, even though they've been so successful. Am I approaching the way you look at it? True for the ancient Greeks, and it's true today. I mean, that you mentioned it for the for the ancient Greeks. Um, I've just started within the, the last week to read Dante's Divine Comedy, Vino Commedia, in Italian. So I've been Italian. I learned about twenty two years ago, and and I've been postponing reading the Divine Comedy. I just started started last week, and the first book of the Canto of the Divine Comedy I read is the Ulysses. Odysseus, ingenious man who devised the Trojan horse, very successful. And then in the Divine Comedy, he gets the bright idea of sailing through the Straits of Hercules across the ocean, and he gets swamped and dies and disappears. That's a fictitious example. Um, there, but real examples today, there are so many examples of, of um, people's strengths turning into their their weaknesses. Um, gosh, among all the examples. Yeah, here's an example. We were talking about Chile. So you nearly died on top of a mountain in Chile, um, and you were rec- rescued by a Chilean doctor. On my last visit to Chile, I got pneumonia, and I was rescued by a Chilean doctor. So you and I have that in common. In the case of Chile, Salvador Allende, um, he was um, Minister of Public Health. And he was regarded as a very effective minister of public health. That was background and was part of the appeal of him as a presidential candidate. Once he got elected president, the qualities that enabled him to be a good minister of public health did not enable him to be a good manager of the Chilean economy. Um, he, he, This saint-like man, nevertheless, mismanaged the Chilean economy, alienating lots of Chileans so that there was opposition not only from the right, but a lot of Chilean centrists. And when the the, the 1973 coup d'etat um, came um, by the military, it was supported by lots of centrist Chileans who didn't realize what the military was going to do. So that's an example, one of a large number of examples of, of people's strengths in one area, not translating into strengths in another area. The interesting thing to me about Chile when I was there, when I had my problem there, which was in 2003, was the completely different view people had of the two regimes. Some people had family members who had been tortured, died being tortured, and others who had had a completely different experience said, under Allende, you had to stand in line all the time. That was their inconvenience and their complaint, and didn't never acknowledged or seemed to be aware of the atrocities visited on other families. It's so interesting that within the same culture, people can cite completely different experiences a little bit like what we're going through now, where people have to explain to us what it's like to be black in America because we have no hint of the experience to have to tell your kids, to have to give your kids the talk so that they'll, they won't get hurt by the police. What, 
what will it take, for instance, for the United States to face the crisis or the crises that we're in? When we have this dis, dis, uh, disarray of, of uh, opinion and we don't accept the same facts, we don't compromise, what will it take for us to do that? Again, let me give you um, um, two examples. Let me start with a Chilean example. You you mentioned um, different Chileans having different views of the atrocities committed by the military dictatorship. When I wrote my recent book, Upheaval, um, one of my chapters was on Chile. And for my chapter on Chile, I interviewed a fair number of Chileans, including some, couple, some Chilean married couples. And in two cases, when I interviewed a married couple, over dinner, at one point, one member of the couple said, let's talk separately. Um, let my wife go into the next room and I'll talk to you. And the reason is that in these two married couples, the husband and wife had opposite views of the military dictatorship. And they wanted to talk to me separately about it because it was a, a painful subject for both of them. That's an example in Chile. In the United States, um, Americans, so many Americans have different views of the same phenomenon, different views, as you say, of the the uh, racial I- issues today. Um, just an example uh, on my street. So I, here in Los Angeles, I, I take walks several times a day for bird watching. And when I, when I go up the street, I, I have a friend, he's a very, very nice guy, and he's intelligent and successful, but his political views are not the same as my political views. Um, they're, they're opposite to my political views. And when one mentions, for example, the current presidential candidates, Biden and and Trump, he smiles and says something about one of those candidates, another thing about the other candidate, which is the opposite of my views. And yet we're living on the same street in the same country, and we perceive the same things. How is it that he can come to such a different conclusion from me? And he was, but but he says, Jared, how on earth is it that you come to such a different conclusion? Um, it's remarkable that, that people can perceive the same things and reach different conclusions. And it, it happens within marriages. It's one of the hopes of this podcast that the kind of friendly relationship you have with this man on your street could lead by personal connection to a deeper understanding of one another and more of a convergence of the way you see the world. Not total agreement, maybe not any kind of agreement, but at least some basis upon which you can both base future behavior in a positive way. Do you see anything like that happening or do you just, are you still miles apart? There has been some change with my friend. And if, if, the change keeps going at the same rate, then I would say 37 years from now, he and I will have similar opinions. We did get to the point, our opinions about climate change differed, and he expressed the view that that um, climate change um, is believed in by scientists because they get funding from the government to support climate change. 
which accounts for all the rich scientists we see. Yeah, so, 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 uh, <laughs> uh, I explained to him that no, in the current governmental situation, scientists do not get funded by the government to, to discover climate change. And, and so he, he started to recognize that possibility. If I keep working on, on him, maybe in a few years he will acknowledge more of climate change. I don't see, I don't see what there is in my views that he's ever going to get me to acknowledge, but that's because I'm right and he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. There kind of has to be a little giving on both sides. But it sounds like the two of you are scheduled to come together in agreement just before the world ends. Yes, the trouble is that the world is going to, if the world ends, it will be 30 years from now. And at that point, I would be 112 and my chances of reaching 112 are not the greatest. Don't say that. I'm counting on that. <laughs> When we come back, I want to know more about how Jared Diamond thinks the world may end in 30 years, but how if we can get past that, the future can be bright. I need to know because I plan to be around right after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show, bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together, plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. 
On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jared Diamond. You answered in the process of talking about this, you answered a question that I often raise at the dinner table when we have eight or 10 people around the table. How long do you think our species will last? And it's an interesting question to me because scientists have told me that the average life of a species is about 2 million years. So my question is, do we have any chance of being average? And you seem to feel no. Ask me that question 30 years from now, if either you or I is alive then. The reason I say that is that the the world is obviously on an unsustainable course. We are exploiting fisheries, we are exploiting forests, we are exploiting topsoil, we are exploiting water at an unsustainable rate, such that we'll run out of them within a few decades unless we get onto a sustainable course, which means that roughly by the year 2050, Either we will have gotten onto a sustainable course, in which case we can go on happily for a long time, or by 2050 we will fail to get onto a sustainable course and we will have deprived ourselves of the opportunity to do so because we will have irreversibly damaged the natural resources on which we depend. So I would say we've got a we've got a, a few decades, and if we get through the few decades, we have a bright future of maybe two million years, but the interesting question is whether we get through the next few decades. What what do we need to do to do that, do you think? Having having seen individual civilizations perish, what about the civilization of civilizations that make us up globally? What do we need to do? Do we need to do the 12 things that you were talking about that you learned from Marie? It's pretty. It's pretty obvious what we need. What we need to do. We have to get. We have to get onto a sustainable economy. That's a major problem. But there are a couple of other major problems that the world faces. We face the problem of climate change, which is due primarily to the burning of fossil fuels. Um, at the rate that the world is heating up and sea level is rising, that's causing major problems. We have the problem of inequality around the world. In the past, when before there were jet airplanes, if there were poor people out there who were dissatisfied and angry, it didn't make any difference to us Americans or to Europeans. But nowadays, when there are poor people who are dissatisfied and angry with jet planes, they have their ways of, of wreaking their dissatisfaction on us, like 
destroying the World Trade Towers. Um, in short, a globalized world with great inequalities, a non-sustainable world. So in the next few decades, what do we have to do? We have to get onto a sustainable economy. We have to halt climate change. We have to reduce inequality around the world. And of course, we have to solve the nuclear problem. We have to, to make sure that we are not going to blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons. Those I, I see as the four biggest problems facing the world today. You remind me when you talk about the world facing a crisis of depletion of resources and other international problems, global problems like that. You remind me of a conversation I, I saw you have where you were talking about the possibility of life on in other parts of the universe, and specifically intelligent life. And you came down on the side of it being unlikely that there's intelligent life other than ours. Is that something you've uh, you've given a lot of thought to, or is that a spur-of-the-moment response? No, it's something that I've thought about. And you, you've quoted an opinion that I held in the past, which I no longer hold, ah, pro- proving oh, that I'm not, I'm not rigid and incorrigible. Um, in, <laughs> in the past, I think in my book, Third Chimpanzee, um, I argued that that intelligent life probably was vanishingly rare. And I explained that it requires lots of conditions to have intelligent life that could send up rockets. You need to not only brains, but you also had to have fingers to make rockets, et cetera, et cetera. And now, whales don't have fingers. Right? That's <laughs> right. That. Whales don't have fingers. Otherwise, they would take over the world. Now, I would argue, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> the, the whales are very smart and they don't make atomic bombs. All right. But, but now I would argue that there's intelligent life all over the place. Why? Because now we know that there are Trillions and trillions, trillions of trillions of stars out there. We've learned in the last couple of decades that a significant fraction of stars, maybe 10%, 1%, have planets. Even if one out of every billion planets has intelligent life, that still means millions, trillions of planets with intelligent life out there, raising the question, why have we not been visited? And I'd say the reason why we have not been visited is twofold. One, the distance even the closest star is four light years and lots of luck getting into a safe spacecraft and surviving four light years. But the other reason why we don't perceive intelligent life is what we're doing to ourselves. Um, any creatures that are intelligent enough to send out rockets and radio signals are also intelligent enough to destroy themselves as we may be in the process of doing today. So that I would say it's up for grabs. The first rocket, Sputnik, was 1958. And at the rate we are going, after the year 2050, there aren't going to be any more Sputniks because we will have destroyed ourselves. That, I would say, is why we've not been visited by the green extraterrestrials. So the, uh, the idea that if they came here some, from someplace else, if they were so advanced that they could defeat the problem of coming across thousands of light years, if they came here and we expect them to be just like us, aggressive and dominating and interested in enslaving other people who don't look like us. Are we basing that on too little evidence? We only have ourselves to compare it to. Well, it would be nice if we had studies of 75 planets 
um, with observations of what happened when extraterrestrials arrived on those planets. Um, we don't have any examples of extraterrestrials arriving, but we do have lots of examples of what one species, namely, namely us, does when it encounters other intelligent beings. We know what has happened when humans encounter other humans. It's generally not been nice-nice. We certainly know what happens when humans encounter gorillas. We cut off their hands and sell them as souvenirs. We know what happens when humans encounter um, chimpanzees. We sell them in markets or we capture them and put them in zoos. Um, we know what happens when humans encounter whales. We harpoon them um, and we put them in SeaWorld. Um, so our track record is uniformly bad when we encounter intelligent creatures. Maybe that's why they haven't come here. They know, they know they know what to expect from us. Well, if they're stronger, if they were stronger than us, the reality is that if they were stronger than us, the likelihood is that they would do what we do to chimpanzees. Namely, they would use us for medical experiments. They would dissect us. Um, they would argue about it. They would put us on in cages. But they certainly wouldn't sit down and be nice, nice, and have intelligent conversations. So I hope this doesn't sound like a cheeky question, and if it does, don't don't answer it. Is there a personal crisis of your own that has given you some insight into the fate of nations? A personal crisis of my own, of course. Yeah, I'm a normal human who's experienced personal crises. Um, and in fact, in my book Upheaval, my first chapter, I began with a discussion of the most severe crisis in my professional life, a crisis when my hope of becoming a scientist seemed not to be working. And, and I was feeling that I'm not going to make it as a scientist. And, and to be a scientist anyway is a matter of ego rather than discovering the truth. So I nearly dropped out of science. Fortunately, I stayed in science. That was a professional crisis. Personal crisis, my first marriage broke up. It broke up tra traumatically. And that was a personal crisis that took me several years to dig out of. So, yes, I'm a normal person who's had professional crises as well as personal crises. My guess is that it's true of the, the vast majority, if not all, of our listeners. I can't imagine not having a crisis or undergoing one and being alive as a human. The, the ability that we are sure we have to make important decisions uh, kind of leads us into behavior that we often regret later. Well, I certainly have enjoyed our conversation, and we, we have to bring it to a close soon. But what we usually do is close with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you game for that? Shoot. Well, I'll tell you one at a time. What do you wish you really understood? Wow. You're not going to get a one-word answer. There are so many <laughs> things that I wish I understood. I wish I knew the origin of Indo-European languages. I, I wish I knew what um, Raphael Saint-Martin said to Simon Bolivar in the last interview. There are so many things that I would love to know. You won't get a one-word answer to that question. That's a revelatory answer. Thank you. Number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That is difficult, and it's an art. One way I'm told to do it is to, to begin by acknowledging the point of view of the other person. And once you acknowledge some of their point of view, 
then go on to give them new information that is not part of their point of view. And so, for example, with my friend up the street who does not believe in climate change. So I begin by acknowledging the difficulties in recognizing climate change, and then I go on to try to enlist his belief. In short, begin by acknowledging something of their point of view and then try to convince them. Great. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Wow. There's so much competition (laughs) for for that honor that I don't know which of the million strange questions I've been asked is most deserving of that honor. Sounds like you let them roll off your back. How do you stop a compulsive talker? The first thing that comes to mind is say, excuse me, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know what's wonderful? I've, all, I've had a hundred conversations on this show. That has come up so many times. That's what's called convergent evolution. Yeah. <laughs> many great minds having the same thought. How do you strike up a conversation, a really true conversation, with someone next to you at a dinner party who you don't know? A way to do it is to do or say something that involves an invitation to exchange of feelings instead of beginning with some fact. But here's my counterexample. My wife, Marie, on on our first meeting at, at a dinner table invited by friends, I knew that Marie's background was Polish. And so I turned to her and asked her, are you Polish? And that launched it, and here we are happily married 42 years later. <laughs> so that was, that was a good first question. So that's it. it leads to our next question, which happens to be there by chance. What gives you confidence? If I had confidence, you would say, Jared, you're an idiot. You shouldn't have confidence. Um, I have partial confidence that by and large, things have turned out okay in my life. Um, by and large, I've done things that I enjoy doing. And so it happens, in fact, Frequently, in New Guinea, I've often been in situations where I thought I didn't see how I was going to come out alive the next day. But I've come out of those situations alive. And so nowadays, each time that I'm in a situation where it looks as if I'm not going to come out alive, I remember I've gotten through these situations before. Therefore, I expect that I'm going to get through this one as well. That's confidence. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, Thoreau's Walden. I read Walden in high school, and then I read it in college. I found it really upsetting because the message of Thoreau is figure out what's really important to you and never mind what other people say. Follow your own desires. And it came at a time when my goals were up in flux. I eventually figured out what I wanted to do professionally, but I found Walden so upsetting that I haven't gone back and read it again. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on this. It was personal, international, global, and interstellar. Thank you. It's been a a great pleasure to talk with you. It's been an enjoyable conversation, and I enjoy listening to you and looking at you. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. 
And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Jared Diamond is professor of geography at the University of California, Los Angeles. His books include The Third Chimpanzee and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Guns, Germs, and Steel. The book we discussed in the podcast is Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. His webpage is jareddiamond.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Brene Brown. Her research and insights in vital human tools like empathy and courage have had a tremendous impact on our culture five best-selling books, and a TED Talk that's been viewed 48 million times so far. When someone else is sharing a story with you, you have to understand that how they see the world is as true and real as how you see the world. You know, it's not like, wow, their view of the world is broken. No, their view of the world is different. So part of empathy is listen to what that story meant to them. So like, if you tell me a story, I'm like, Alan, I don't know why you're so upset about it. It's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. People do that all the time. I'm not hearing what it meant to you. And that becomes an empathic, what we call in clinical work, an empathic miss or an empathic failure. Brene Brown, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.